Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. I've spent a lot of time on this podcast in recent weeks discussing the summer's severe drought across the Dakotas, Montana, parts of Minnesota, a large part of the pheasant range and how that drought is impacting pheasants. So we've talked a little bit about bobwhite quail, but today we're going to head towards the southwestern part of the United States. And if you live in the southwest, you know that there's a severe drought happening in parts of California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona right now as well. In today's episode, we're going to focus on that drought in the desert southwest and its impact on a few quail species. In particular, we're going to talk about Gamble's quail, scaled quail, Mern's quail in the state of Arizona with Arizona biologist Larissa Harding of the Arizona Game and Fish Department, uh, the small game program manager, and then also Jim Heffelfinger, also with the Arizona Game and Fish Department, this the state's wildlife science coordinator. Both Larissa and Jim are members of the state's drought task force. And we're going to find out what that means. Do they have to do a rain dance? What what do they do as part of the drought task force? And how does that connect to wildlife? So without further ado, Larissa and Jim, welcome to On The Wing Podcast. Uh, Larissa, let's start with you. Um, thank you for, for making your introductory debut into the on the wing podcast with pheasants forever and quail forever um tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh where you grew up uh, you know your career path and uh your connection to to the the quail species that we know and love sure thank you bob um, I will just say that my standing joke lately has been uh, it's time to perfect our rain dances. So it's funny that you would bring that up because <laughs> I've been working on mine. If this weren't a podcast, I could probably show you some dance moves. <laughs> um, I, I grew up uh, in East Tennessee and down in the South. Most of my life was spent down there till I went away to college. And uh, I wasn't a bird hunter growing up but I was a snake chaser and uh, just about any mammal you could put your hands on, I put my hands on. Hmm. Um, I went away to school, did a bachelor's and master's in wildlife at uh, Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and then went on to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque to do a PhD in uh, what I would loosely term evolutionary biology. Looking at genetics of wildlife species and and patterns of movement over time and space. And so um, while I was in Utah, I knew growing up in East Tennessee, I loved the green and I loved the Smoky Mountains. My family sits, our family home was right on the edge of the Smokies. And so I spent a lot of times hiking around the woods and watching wildlife. And then when I went out to Utah, got to spend a whole lot more time. Uh, in the high mountains and red rock country and and just got familiar with a lot more of the species and territories 
um, realized that I really enjoyed being outdoors more than just about anything else. Hmm. And so I picked a career going into conservation biology and wildlife management. Um, I didn't start hunting with a gun. I, I make the joke that I hunted for a long time with a camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I first started hunting, I went for a lot of armed hikes instead of hunting. <laughs> as We've I all learned, been on those. Yeah, as I learned the tricks <laughs> of the trade and kind of figured out here and there. Um, had some great mentors, some retired game and fish folks here that I met in Arizona after I'd gone through and realized that I really enjoyed uh, shotgun shooting. Spent a lot of time at the clay target range here close to the headquarters in Phoenix and got interested in dove hunting and bird hunting. Got a first try, you know, with doves for bird hunting and got into some big game hunting and and huh. really loved both. Um, have gone on since to become a mentor for other women who are also interested in shooting and hunting. And that's been a lot of fun. Um, I don't currently own a bird dog. I have what I would best term as a squirrel dog (laughs) or she's an outdoor hiking dog, but she loves to chase squirrels and we've made that work over the last 10 years that I've had her. So um, maybe someday I'll transition to that high energy bird dog. Uh, I've got a high energy squirrel dog, but she's getting older and uh, just love the last several years. Uh, have really enjoyed getting into at least watching and and chasing quail on the ground and then the last couple of years actually being able to be a proficient enough shot that i felt like i could actually get out there and chase quail with a gun and harvest a few and so um spent seven years here in arizona leading a terrestrial research program for the state um, different than the extraterrestrial research program that we have, and uh, and then moved over to the. I didn't think you were allowed to talk about that. Well, you know, it's kind of hush hush. And then um, moved over to the small game lead for the state. So I've been in this position for a couple of years, working with uh, quail and dove and waterfowl and rabbits and squirrels and other small critters. So. That's my that's my story. <laughs> Super fun. That was some follow up questions for you. Do you remember uh, what the catalyst was that got you to take the leap into bird or into to hunting? Because it, it sounds like you didn't really do that um, until you were an adult. Maybe started working in in this field. What was uh, what was the impetus? I uh, well yeah, like you say, I came to hunting as an adult. Um, I grew up doing a lot of tracking and trailing Mm. on the ground and my dad was military, retired from the military. And so we grew up shooting, but he had kind of left his bird hunting days. He'd done a lot of pheasant hunting when he was doing his PhD in Nebraska and always talked about that, but we never really hunted with him in Tennessee. And so um, I'd always been curious about that and I have uh, almost rabid uh, hunting uncles in Utah that when I got to Utah, I really got, uh, more exposure to big game at least, but still didn't hunt. And then when I came here, I just, I I made the, the choice, you know, I really wanted to get proficient with firearms and just found that I loved, 
uh, trap and sporting clay mm. shooting in particular, you know, and, and the instructors kept saying, well, this is just like dove hunting. You should mm-hmm. try dove hunting. And, and I said, well, if I can eat it, I'll, I'll shoot it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a meat hunter, uh, or I've decided I'm a meat hunter more than any kind of trophy hunter or, sure. or looking for the biggest rack. But, um, I really enjoy being able to take it from field to plate and yep. sharing that with people. And so that, I think just kind of combined a whole bunch of things for me because I do enjoy shooting, but I also, like I said, for years and years, I was a stalk and track and, mm. you know, watching wildlife uh, in detail. And um, that just allows me to get out there and, and do all of that together. And, mm. you know, with birds, it's fun. Like I've seen, uh, like I said, I don't have a bird dog, but I've been out with folks who do, and it's just so much fun to watch the dogs work right. and the excitement that comes with, you know, going birdie when you when you find a quail or a pheasant out there. And, and you mentioned, I think you said you got your master's in evolutionary biology, and then you your jump to a career is more conservation or um, wildlife biology, uh, you know, is what was the the connection there for you? It's sort of, you know, it's sort of a little bit of a change in direction, maybe. It's kind of, uh, well, I did it backwards um, uh, from what you said. I actually started in wildlife biology okay, and, and conservation biology. That's what my bachelor's and master's uh, emphasis was. Got and it. PhD was genetics, mostly that evolutionary aspect and the reason I did that, I did a lot of um, black bear work as an undergrad and a master's student in Utah and um, super loved it. Really enjoyed, you know, big charismatic carnivore crawling into bear dens, trapping mm-hmm. big critters with big teeth and claws. But when I finished my master's, I realized if I want to be really marketable in that niche that I felt like I could be most effective, then I need to learn the lingo and the techniques and at least be familiar with some of the genetic work that was going on in the conservation field and uh, that I saw kind of becoming an emergent, you know, uh, field and and necessary thing in wildlife management. And for me, I think the the goal was, and I hope it is, (laughs) uh, I hope I'm being successful at it, but the but the goal for me was to kind of bridge that gap that I really felt was was present between like a state wildlife agency, you know, and Utah had worked very closely with state wildlife agencies on black bear management and research. And then kind of the ivory tower academic academia, you know, academic mm-hmm. world of like they we're doing phenomenal research, but that doesn't always get communicated and translated into mm-hmm. on the ground practice to sure. help with conservation or management of critters. And so that's where I really wanted to push. I wanted to come out of you know school with a good solid toolbox of skills and knowledge, and then be able to get into the you know on the ground practical management aspects of here's what we can really do to affect wildlife populations and you know improve habitats and that kind of thing. So. So um, our Western Regional Director, Al Iden, who used to work for Arizona Game and Fish, said, I got a nugget for you about Larissa you got to bring up. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. Here it comes, right? <laughs> Super fascinating. And he didn't tell me much about it. He just said, bring up the topic of trapping quail from golf, golf courses 
and moving them to legit gambles quail wildlife habitat. That's kind of one of her babies. So tell us about that. So right as I came into this position, um, the former small game lead had worked uh, with the University of Arizona to kind of set up a research program for a master's or a PhD student at U of A. And um, that was, I guess, exploring the efficacy of translocating what we, what I would consider fat, spoiled golf course birds, <laughs> right. you know, urban birds that were healthy and, and chunky and robust in huh. nature out to wild areas to augment and kind of repopulate these areas after, you know, 30 some years of drought mm. or 20 some years of drought at least and see if in a good year, like, you know, we've had two very dry winters back to back here, but but before that, we had a couple of really nice winters. And so it was kind of like in a good wet winter year when kind of conditions are ideal for gambles quail, you know, can we take these fat golf course birds and move them into Ooh. wild areas and get them to go, <laughs> get them to settle and reproduce and raise broods and, you know, kind of refurbish and replenish the landscape with, with quail in those areas that they've just kind of struggled along in the last decade or two. And so um, that study is just wrapped up and the student is working on manuscripts and things, but curious to see, you know, what, if any, um, if there's a, if there's a good, uh, reason or a good grounding for that to say, hey, this can work and we can be ready to go. You know, ideally you'd want to be like, okay, climate's looking good this winter. Let's <laughs> let's get some birds strapped and and get out there and and turn a bunch of birds loose on the landscape and in those good years to just replenish the the quail numbers out there. So you're leaving with the leaving us with a cliffhanger. <laughs> Do you have any indication if it? it may be viable or not, or is it just, it, you haven't looked at the, the results? It's hard to say. I mean, we've, we've had, you know, kind of annual updates the last couple of years. Um, the first year, obviously the first year you do anything is a learning curve. Um, we, we captured quail from essentially two golf courses. Uh, the, the thought initially was to capture quail across several golf courses here in Phoenix and Tucson and move them down to an area that's uh, not too many miles north of the border, the Mexican border, hmm. out into a big valley that had a lot, that historically has had good quail populations, but really the last handful of years has struggled. And we've got some great landowners down there that are very um, cooperative and amenable to letting us try these kinds of activities. And they grant landowner access for hunting uh, seasonally. And so it's ideal that way too, you know, to mm. do these do these repopulations in the hopes that someday again soon you'll have really huntable, sustainable populations to hunt. And, mm. And so um, we moved quail down to two different ranches down there that were, we had agreements with. And, um, and I guess it's true for both years, both years that we moved quail, we moved about 200 quail down there and put radio tracking collars on a handful of the females at each place to follow them with broods and, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing, nesting and brooding. And um, what we saw is on one ranch, 
Uh, I don't know if callers failed or if they just, the birds just said, we're out of here and dispersed beyond anywhere that the graduate student was looking. Huh. Um, they they just kind of disappeared relatively quickly on the one ranch and the other ranch, they did better at sticking around and being more visible or, you know, audible to the radio tracking equipment, but uh, had heavy predation on mm on birds with uh surprisingly it looked like things like reptiles you know snakes and Ooh. not always a hawk or an owl but a lot of reptile predation and and things and so, but you know over over the two years i'd say there were probably close to 30 percent of the birds that survived some of those nested and did raise mm -hmm. broods um and, you know, I've been told for small game numbers and for those kinds of translocations, that's, that's pretty good odds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think yeah, most just... people hear, you know, 30% and, and gasp and, but the, mm -hmm. for small game, that's pretty good odds. And if you have a good year, you know, on that, then your chances, if those animals survive, then they have a, a real, you know, robust chance of then reproducing. And yeah, that, that is I mean, 30% does sound small, but comparatively, like some of the research on uh, even just so stocking pheasants, not wild birds, stocking, like it's something like 90, 92% of them die within the first 10 days from predation because they don't even know, they don't even know how to survive with predators. They've lived their lives underneath a net. So the idea of at least taking wild birds, mm -hmm. even if they're, they're fat and happy on a golf course. They <laughs> they have a little bit more survival instinct than something that's um, um, you know raised in a net. Anyways, yeah. Jim's been super patient here. Uh, I'll I'll enter Jim into the conversation. Jim Jim Heffelfinger, and if folks um, are mule deer aficionados, you probably already know Jim's name. He's one of the foremost experts on mule deer in the country, but he's a uh, uh, a wildlife science coordinator for the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and and uh, he's going to help us out talking quail a little bit today as well. Jim, um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be here. Um, I've I've done a little bit more than um, quail and deer through the years. I, to give everybody a little background of where I came from and and how I got here, I grew up in in northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin, and uh, went to got my bachelor's degree at University of Wisconsin Stevens Point in central Wisconsin, and then was sick of shoveling snow and so i looked for some place <laughs> that was south and west of wisconsin and and uh ended up in uh in south texas for my master's degree and worked on coyote predation on on whitetails and uh, a little stint at the blm in carlbad new mexico and 30 about 30 years ago ended up the arizona game at fish in tucson as a regional biologist for southeastern arizona and so that's my um my connection although i do a lot of things with big game and a lot of things with wolves now my connection with quail was a 23-year stint as a southeastern Arizona regional biologist um, in charge of or overseeing the, the management of, of Gamble's quail and um, some scale, scale, scale quail and Mern's quail, um, ghouls turkey and some other things. And so been in both the mammal and the bird world in a management kind of situation for 23 years. And then about five years ago, transitioned over to uh, more of a statewide wildlife science coordinator, kind of a science advisor, working a lot with Mexican wolf recovery and Western big game issues as chair of a, a Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies mule deer working group. And so when I was um, 
growing up in northern Illinois, we moved from a big city, Aurora, to a very rural area, Horicon, by the Horicon National Wildlife Refuge in southeastern Arizona. I went to Horicon High School, and that transition from the big city to a rural area, my, my, my dad quit Illinois Bell Telephone, um, which was what AT&T was, AT was at then. Mm -hmm and um, bought a little hardware store and and i went into eighth grade and found out that some of my my other my new friends in eighth grade were actually walking around in the woods with real shotguns their parents let them walk around the woods with real shotguns at 14 and i was pretty intrigued by that and um, started hunting with them and by the time it came time to try to figure out what i was going to do for a living i found out that there was actually wildlife biologists that got paid to do wildlife kind of stuff and so that that sent me up to Stevens Point, which at the time, and I think still may be the largest undergraduate wildlife school in the country. So I was pretty well suited for that. And um, I'm still not shoveling snow. Haven't, <laughs> haven't left Tucson. Although I was in Tucson, I was in uh, Wisconsin the last week and a half. So I get periodically get my fill of beer and brats and cheese. And <laughs> was even in Lambeau Field on uh, on the, the Friday night for uh, family fun night in Lambeau Field. <laughs> oh, it's terrific. You do sound like a native Wisconsinite. <laughs> yeah, there, hey. Yeah, hey. Yeah, hey. Hold, <laughs> hold my beer. I'm going to try something. <laughs> um, yeah, my, uh, my nephew will be starting his sophomore year as a pointer. At, oh, uh, excellent. Yeah, he's, he's studying wildlife at uh, Wisconsin Stevens Point. So, so uh, it, a very good school. We've got a lot of employees at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever with degrees from, from Stevens Point. Um, so well, welcome both of you. Before we jump into the drought talk, I'm going to uh, give a shout out to our friends at um, um, South Dakota Tourism and South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. Start a South Dakota tradition in the world's greatest place to hunt pheasants. Plan your visit and learn more about Upland Adventures at HuntTheGreatest.com. All right, so the last couple of episodes over the course of this summer, we've talked about this website, Drought.gov. And I'm guessing you both have looked at that site a few times. And it's honestly, I looked at it when I created the sort of my draft outline for this conversation. And um, I looked at it maybe a week ago and it was updated yesterday and Arizona's changed a little bit color wise since yesterday. So thankfully, <laughs> yeah, thankfully. So, so Larissa, give us, um, sort of an overview of what, what the drought or the summer of 2021 has been like for the state of Arizona. I would say it was pretty brutal until about three or four weeks ago, um, mid-June when we, I mean, I think we've been concerned all along, but mid-June, you know, when they, when the news starts saying the monsoons are here and we keep looking to the skies and saying, no, they're not, mm. um, you know, the drought index then at drought.gov or com was like 90 something percent of the state was in that extreme or exceptional drought, mm -hmm. which is that nice, dark, ugly, deep red color. Um, and now, you know, about 5% of the state is in that extreme drought phase. So we've, uh, things were looking really bleak through the spring. Um, we had 
two winters back to back, like I said, with no rain and no monsoon. You know, here it was the monsoons last mm. summer, and uh, we were hoping it would not be the monsoons again this year, though it looked that way mid-June to early July. And then uh, early July, uh, the rains, I'm here in Phoenix and Jim is down in Tucson and the rains seem to just kind of circle to the east of Phoenix and go down into Tucson. And so they started to get rain before we did. And um, we finally started to get rain mid to late July here in Phoenix hmm. and have had a, a good number of inches. I think we're up to at least two and a half, three inches here now in the Phoenix area where Tucson was the had their highest amount of recorded rainfall in any given month uh, in July with seven plus inches down in Tucson. And so you can imagine to a desert that looked like a moonscape prior to those rains, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when the rains came, you had, you know, we've seen a, a huge flush of green up and cacti and other things that were delayed in blooming and flowering have suddenly come to life. Uh, I will say May May was really impressive uh, with the saguaro cacti here just because uh, it seemed like every cactus and every arm of every cactus had flowers on it and had fruit on it. And to me, you know, that was just a signal and I'm not a cactus biologist, but <laughs> But to me, that just told me like those cactus were, those cacti were severely stressed. And, you know, if I was a saguaro, I was thinking like, I'm on my last limbs and I'm going to put everything into reproduction I possibly can this year mm. because I may not make it to next year. And so we had crazy numbers of uh, saguaro flowers and fruits, at least here in the Phoenix area. And it was beautiful that way. Mm. But that kind of gave us hope that maybe there's... <laughs> If these, you know, desert adapted plants and animals can hold out long enough, maybe we'll get some rain and, and watching quail broods and things early. You know, I heard my first, my first Gamble's quail breeding call February 2nd. Wow. This year walking the neighborhood here in North Phoenix. And I huh. thought, oh, it's really early. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, um, and started to see broods, um, you know, young chicks. Uh, a couple months after that, but really did not see the numbers of animals that we have seen in the past. And um, I went away to East Tennessee to visit in late May and the uh, first couple weeks of June and came back. And the broods that I had been seeing up until that point, just here walking around the washes in the neighborhood that I do every morning and night mm -hmm. with the dog, um, you know, those birds were down to one or two chicks left out of 10 if they had them and we'd had about three weeks of massive you know extreme heat and that coupled with the the drought conditions that we were having i'm sure just i hate to say just probably cooked a lot of baby quail hmm. on the landscape and certainly made those that you know we don't typically or typically we get a flush of baby quail that you know at least gives a gives them a chance to overwhelm a predator like a roadrunner. And I think this year the roadrunner could just sit and pick off <laughs> individual quail, baby quail from the broods that we were seeing. And so uh, predation and temperatures and drought just did a number on our, on our gambles quail this spring. But uh, thankfully uh, when it started to rain, I'll be curious to see if we're, if we're, if those rains came in enough time or early enough that, that our Mern's quail or Montezuma quail can take advantage of them for reproduction because might be a little too late in some cases for 
gambles quail. Okay, so boy, I get a ton of questions for you. Um, so when we talk, a, a lot of times when we we've talked about drought related to pheasants and bob whites, it's been well, it's so dry that it's really not enough green to create insect production for food. When we talk, when you were talking about gambles quail, you were talking their vulnerability to predators and sort of cooking them because it's so darn hot. But I, is food a component of, of um, a drought that makes them super susceptible to, to death as well? Definitely. I mean, that's, you know, with our winter rains, the nice thing that comes with that is obviously a spring green up of kind of those forbaceous, you mm -hmm. know, the ephemeral, the ephemeral annuals that come. And uh, we just did not get that this year with no rain in the winter or very scant rain in the winter. And so, like I said, our, our landscapes here, at least in Phoenix, but even down south when I visited early and late February and into March, you know, places that are typically green by that point of the, t of the year were some of them really looked like the surface of Mars, mm. you know, well, just it, dry. It, and so that left no, no room for, there wasn't the green up to trigger breeding with the vitamin A and, and other things that the quail rely on the adults do. And then there wasn't the green up to support the insect crop that the young, birds rely on when they after they first hatch so, so <clears throat> i didn't get to arizona you know for the first time in my life until say five years ago and like you larry i grew up in more northern climate you grew up in tennessee jim grew up in uh northern illinois southern wisconsin and you know if you've never been to arizona or seen the desert you do have this perception that well it it's the desert. It's a moonscape. Like, but, but that's not the reality of, you know, you talk about green up. I mean, that happens in the desert when there is moisture at, in what is traditionally our winter months when it's snow up north, right? I mean, you talked about that yeah. a little bit with you know, the critical time for these. And I'd like you to talk about kind of the difference between gambles and scalies versus myrns and how the time of the year where the moisture comes in plays into that. But so, so what's critical time for the desert is that January, February timeframe, right? Yeah. For our desert birds, which are generally our, our gambles and scale quail uh, more so than the myrns quail, um, they rely very heavily on that winter precipitation. And so, you know, December, January, February timeframe okay. uh, when they get the winter rains and then that, you know, leads to the green up that triggers breeding, that triggers nesting and then um, leads to the broods being able to be supported by insects the first couple weeks of life and as they switch over to, to the seeds and things. Uh, and so th that's true of the gambles. Um, the scalies tend to follow that pattern but but there's a little bit of wiggle room in the scalies i think that's not there with the gambles because huh. some of the some of the research and and even just anecdotal 
observations from folks that are quail hunters and, and quail biologists seems to suggest that maybe the scalies can also take advantage of some of that monsoon rain. Okay. Um, but uh, they, they tend to follow suit with the gambles quail uh, most often. But then Mern's quail um, rely very heavily on the monsoon rains that come in, you know, June, July uh, to pair up and to breed and to raise a brood. And so if they don't get the monsoon rains, then we don't see young Merns or we see reduced numbers of young Merns in the in the fall, you mm. know, harvest and, and carryover. And so um, gambles, I think it might be fair to say that gambles quail can, you know, provide kind of that pulse of um, reproduction and you can see big changes in gambles numbers over over a good season you know whereas mm. Mern's quail they rely on the summer rains but they also rely on how much of that population carries over through the winter before you can see you know a, a bigger pulse of of Mern's chicks on the landscape and so mm. you know right now the big question is how many birds did we have that managed to overwinter the last few years on the ground for Mern's and what's that what are they going to be able to take advantage of in this reproductive time? And, you know, is that going to help us? Because it may take three or four years to see the, mm. <laughs> the effects of recovery, you know, in, a, in the Mern's quail numbers. Well, will a Gamble's quail or a scale quail, if they're breeding as early as February into March, are they able or do they do a second nesting? Uh, so you, you got some wonderful rains in June and July. Can they actually pull off a second nest in one spring slash summer season? There has there has been evidence of that in Texas. There's a couple of studies. I think they were in Texas that um, that documented for scaled quail at least that they were able to pull off a second brood. There's not a, a lot of good evidence that gambles have done that. Hmm. Um, so I can't, I don't know, I don't know the right answer to that here in Arizona. I, you know, you would hope that potentially that would be an ideal thing, right? Like, I mean, our doves can pull off five or six mm. broods in a really good year and uh, the gambles just don't go quite that fast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, there is a lot of speculation that they can do that. But mm. the only one that I know for sure that they've documented, and it's just been a few cases of it, has been in scaled quail. Okay. Yeah, that's also been documented in bobwhites too. But even in that situation where they have a lot more nutrition, it as rare as it happens, it's not significant to boost the population. You're not going to see a big second hatch. Um, and people that see later birds often say, well, that's the second hatch. But mm -hmm. that's, that's birds, that's females that uh, their first nest failed and they re-nested. And so they're they're having young a little bit later in the season. But so I think that, I mean, the overall answer is that it can happen, but it's so rare. It's just not contributing to quail numbers in the fall. Right. Okay. So, so these species, uh, gambles, scalies, uh, merns, very much like when we talk about pheasants or bobwhites, if, if their clutch of eggs is predated, but a bird hasn't hatched out of it, chick hasn't hatched, they'll re relay a second clutch. The downside is it'll, their first nesting attempt is generally, say, 12 eggs. The second nesting attempt would be down to seven. Same thing happens. The third nesting attempt, three to five eggs. As long as a bird or a chick doesn't hatch, they keep trying to, to 
to re-nest. That pretty true of, of Gamble, Scale, and, and Merns as well? Yes, yeah, they'll they'll keep re-nesting like that. I'm not sure you'll see such a precipitous drop in the number of eggs. It depends on nutrition, if they've got good nutrition um, and and have the time to do it. But when you think about the, the, the number of days it takes to um, lay the egg, lay 12 eggs, and mm -hmm. then start incubating for 24 days, and then raise a brood, and then in, in our kind of, arid climate is not like Florida to think of them starting that whole cycle over. You, you kind of run out of time. You certainly do right. for Mern's quail too. Right. Um, yeah. So Jim, you mentioned, or I mentioned in the introduction that Jim and Larissa are both on the drought task force. What, what does that mean? To, uh, what does it mean to be on a drought task force for a wildlife division? Well, I guess I'll start out. Um, we, because of how bad the drought was last year leading up through june uh it was just obvious you drive anywhere and everything was crispy it looked really really bad and and so there's a lot of concern not only from um, stakeholders but but our, our agency ourselves and our commission and um and so we it's not like we don't do anything we just sit around and wait and see if we get rain we we have a lot of things our agency has always done to kind of mitigate and ameliorate the effects of of drought. We haul a lot of water to big game water catchments, some small game get to use those. Um, we're working a lot on just maintaining connectivity among habitat, which helps animals move around to maybe places that might be a little better or if a local water hole dries up, they can move over to another area where there's water. So there's a lot of things we normally do, but hmm. we felt like we didn't have it all together in one place where we could pretty easily articulate all of these, this whole suite of things that we did when we get into these these drought conditions. So we're in the middle of doing that as a team. We certainly don't have any products, but um, like all all things, you assemble a committee to tackle a problem, and then it starts raining like crazy, which is what, <laughs> what's happened here. But we should but, have done this a year and a half ago. <laughs> that would be nice. But we're you know we're still full steam ahead. We're putting together some good things. It's going to not only kind of pull everything together, so it's a coordinated effort and a coordinated plan, but we can easily articulate all of the scattered things we do in all the different parts of the department. Larissa talked about the monsoons that we're having here and down in Tucson, and she, she mentioned that Tucson's getting more than in Phoenix. In Tucson, during the monsoon season, we normally get about six inches of rain. And if you look at sources like rainlog.org is a good place to look and you can you can define a time period it'll tell you how many inches of rain at all these different locations and if you if you look at that for july through like today mm -hmm. beginning of july through about the 17th of august we've got areas with instead of six inches of rain areas with eight 10 15 even 17 inches of rain around southeastern arizona and so that's the monsoon and as larissa said that's really what the merge quail key off of so Merns quail reproduction in southeastern Arizona, which is where all the merns quail really are, is going to be fantastic. The question is, as she mentioned, how what kind of breeding stock do we have? Mm -hmm. What stock is there is going to have excellent reproduction, but it just depends. Merns quail are more, they seem more dependent on survival through the year, too. Whereas like a gambles quail, a desert quail, they have this huge pulse of reproduction um, in most years when the conditions are fine. And they 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 die a lot. That's just kind of what they do. That's their job. They die and they feed other animals at a high rate. Merns quail, it seems to be much more important to maintain cover for them and maintain, protect them and, um, and let those survive. They have a higher survival than, than other quail through the year. And I think Larissa mentioned that. It'll depend on, on what kind of carryover we get to take advantage of these really good reproductive conditions. Huh. So 
the um, the rains, you know, when I think about the difference in habitat between Mern's quail in that um, Sky Island sort of, I, I've explained it to people. If I was blindfolded and dropped into Mern's country, it would be really easy to convince me that I was in Montana. It, it, it just feels, you know, like tall grass, mountains around you, um, you know, oaks, oak trees. It just, you know, there obviously some habitat differences or plant differences in the biology, but just landscape wise, it feels like Montana. Whereas, or the middle of Mexico. Uh, uh, well, this, is, this is all the same as the Sierra Madre in Mexico, the same kind of plants and environment. But it's dramatically different from where you find gambles and scalies. So with this, you know, really heavy monsoon rains, is that going to make for really lush, thick habitat where merns live this year as well? Yes, definitely. There's even higher rainfall amounts up in those higher elevation areas. And and um, and we'll see. We did some research back. We published it in Journal of Wildlife Management in 1999, I think, or 2000, where we looked at rainfall in that winter period with Gamble's quail. And we looked at summer temperatures, too, which people, mm-hmm. not many people had looked at temperatures at that time and, and found that, that, that December, January period is the key. That's the core of when you need rainfall for Gamble's quail. The next best time is to get it in February and March, a little bit after that. And then it was a little weaker of a response for the November, the October, November um, at the beginning of that. So those winter rainfalls are really important. But then we found also that if you had a really hot summer, that was really bad cooking those little baby quail. But if you had even a moderate amount of winter rainfall, kind of an average winter rainfall year, and then you didn't have too hot of a summer, you you could pull off a, a decent reproduction um, in that year. Sometimes the gambles quail and, and what, and what Larissa said about scale quail was spot on about there, just a little more flexible where they can take advantage of summer rains. If the winter rains weren't there, they're a little more flexible that way. Um, and gambles quail can't do that too. If they have a bad winter, which we had a horrible winter hmm. and we have a really good summer, some of them might be able to catch the beginning of that if it's, um, if it's early enough, but just can't, it's hard to forecast. There's no telling whether that's going to happen this year or not. So, as I recall, you had a spectacular gambles population heading into winter, but um, kind of a, 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 a lower Merns quail population. So, as you head into winter, as you mentioned, a pretty tough winter, pretty, really tough summer. Uh, with the rains here coming now, um, it sounds like gambles it's probably not going to help a whole lot, but Merns to the extent that there's adults on the landscape, it'll help a little bit. Right. Yep. If we, the whole key with Merns is whether we have what kind of breeding stock we have to take advantage of it right now there, because they're, they're in in great shape right now, but I don't know how many are there. And then you're right about the gambles. It looked, and I've been down in Tucson for 30 years and it looked, I mean, obviously the worst in my 30 years, but a lot longer than that, probably. It looked really sad when you were out there in the landscape. It was gravel and mm. and just like dead twigs. Mm. And you try to think about a, a gambles quail running around in that, trying to get out of the heat and trying to find some food. Um, it, it's hard to be optimistic about how many breeders made it through last year. So it's, it's probably going to be a multi-year recovery. So um, as you head north to states like Iowa and Minnesota, they're doing August roadside counts. 
right? It, counting pheasants at uh, dewy mornings, they come out and there's an opportunity to sort of get a index on numbers. When you look at the three quail species in Arizona, is there any way that you can monitor populations or is that just simply impossible and you try to do your best with bird harvest and weather and try to forecast it based on that? I did some of the harvest surveys with check stations and and call count surveys under my regional biologist position for for all the years that I was down in Tucson. But we've got research going back to the 60s that correlate uh, spring call counts. And I, like, since that's Larissa's shop, maybe I'll let her describe the, the spring call counts that we've been doing for a long time and how they correlate with like birds per day in the fall, actual hunt success. Yeah, so like Jim says, the department, we've been running, uh, you know, designated routes, survey routes every spring, typically starting late March and, and going every couple of weeks through the first part of May in most cases. And uh, going out and conducting breeding call counts for the male gambles quail that are calling to attract a mate. And then correlating that with hunter harvest in the fall. Hmm. We run a couple of check stations in some of our most popular quail hunting areas each fall and and then have wing barrels out for uh, quail, but more so for the Mearns quail than the gambles and scalies. Mm. Um, but then just correlating that, you know, looking over time with that data, it's not obviously going to be a, anything but an index, you know, a trend type of thing with call counts. But they do tie pretty closely. You know, if you see a lot of, of calling activity in the spring, you tend to have higher harvest of birds and higher harvest of juvenile birds in the fall that indicates they've been, you know, reproducing and, hmm. and putting new birds out there. Um, with Merns, it's a little more difficult. Uh, I'm sure Jim could probably tell you lots of horror stories about trying to survey Merns on the ground. And I know they've tried everything from you know, dog assisted surveys <laughs> and trying to run transects that way. But merns are just uh, notoriously difficult to to index on the ground in the spring or the summer. And so we rely very heavily on those wing barrels and, and hmm. voluntarily submitted wings to look at ratios of male, female and juvenile to adult in the harvest. And that gives us, again, an index of, you know, Mern's activity and helps us know like, hey, we're, we're seeing lots of juveniles in the, in the harvest. And so there's good reproduction or we're not seeing, you know, juveniles and, and we're worried about broodstock. And so that just that goes year to year. But, yeah, we've we've got Gamble's data back to the late 1950s, early 60s. And then Mern's quail for at least the last 20 to 30 years. Oh. Yeah, as I was a regional biologist, we had um, local hunters come out with their dogs with Mern's quail. Mern's quail aren't very vocal. You can't go out and do call counts. Okay. So we'd have groups of hunters come out with their dogs, and we had standardized routes, and we ran them year after year after year for 10, 15 years, probably the same routes at the same time of the year. And it was usually the weekend before the, the hunt opened. And it was a great way to engage local sportsmen and women and to get out and, and kind of be a part of collecting some quail data. It was fun. We do have lunch. It was a great social thing but then our research branch came through and, and took some of the data and 
and did some analyses on it and found that it was really not very useful, really from a <laughs> biological standpoint, that, that you would need, I forgot what the exact numbers were, but you would need gigantic swings in the quail population right. to be able to, to maybe detect it a little bit. When you looked at the power of the data mm. in forecasting the population, it was really not very useful. So we, we kind of had to admit, you know, this is fun, this is great uh, engagement, citizen science and all that, mm -hmm. but you know, if it's, if it's, let's not fool ourselves. If it's really not giving us any kind of index to quail populations, let's not just go through the motions and pretend like it is. And we do, I will add one more thing kind of along those lines. For scaled quail, um, our habitat enhancements, we've worked a lot to restore some of the grasslands around Arizona. And so as part of the monitoring of the effects and the effectiveness of doing that in places, we've done some, uh, we've recruited again, some of those sportsmen and women with dogs and gone out and done scaled quail surveys in particular grassland areas on the weekend, typically before the desert quail season opens in October. And uh, one of the fun things that we, <laughs> I think they just kind of discovered by accident is that a dog that will point quail is usually pretty good at pointing desert turtles. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so um, we do a desert turtle, you know, box turtle scaled quail survey every year with uh, some of our sportsmen and women and let them <laughs> run their dogs. And that provides, you know, a little bit of information mm -hmm. about that particular area and the habitat and, and some of the numbers in both turtles and scaled quail yeah what i was going to say one thing that's really important when we're talking about these surveys and some of them not being very effective is that when it comes to a small game like that you don't have to know how many quail are in each game management unit you don't have to have a really close look at abundance they fluctuate we know with environmental conditions here mostly with rainfall we know through research and years and decades and decades of management experience that if we kind of monitor um, the harvest, like with wing barrels or check stations, and see the re what kind of reproduction we're getting each year, do some call counts, we don't really need, for management purposes, it's not a research project, mm -hmm. for management purposes, we really don't need um, more refined information about how many quail are out there. We're, we've done a good job of managing them for decades. And I was going to say, it feels like, you know, I, I make the mistake often of lumping gambles and scalies together in, in my questions. And, and there is a, a bit of a distinct, maybe not always distinct difference in where, where you find them, but, you know, thinking back on where, where I've hunted gambles and where I've hunted scalies, gambles tend to be more cactus filled, more classic desert scalies there's always a little bit more grass around. It's, it's sort of a function of, I mean, it's not CRP, but there's, there's grass. Is that a, is that a accurate sort of assessment of, yeah, I keep lumping them as desert quail, but there's really a distinction there that they're a little different. Yeah. I'd yeah. say that's mostly true. Yeah. We consider our scale quail habitat grassland and yucca like yucca studded mm. desert grassland what's interesting though is when you go just to the east of new mexico where they've done a whole bunch of scale quail research and they've done a bunch of uh, work on what kind of habitat scale quail are using they're favoring brushy the a brushy habitat in new mexico and it's hard that's hard to explain they seem to be focusing on slightly different habitat just on that side of the border huh. Um, huh. so i think it's just a matter of flexibility in their habitat yeah um, requirements so jim i introduced you as one of the the world's foremost mule deer um, experts 
and you couldn't see my eye roll because my camera's on. <laughs> well, well, if you do a Google search, mule deer and your name are a bit synonymous. Um, I'm glad that's what comes up. At first. <laughs> but I'm curious, since we're talking, um, you know, qu these quail species, when you're thinking about mule deer is, and this is a, a complete curveball. You're not expecting this question. So my apologies. Um, is there, is there a connection between quail management, quail habitat, what you think about uh, when you're thinking about mule deer? Um, is there, other than the natural web of life connection, is there, is there anything that tips you off to mule deer population health when you think about quail or when you see data? I, I think quail? only, yeah, I think only in the herbaceous layer. I mean, quail, our gambles quail, they need kind of a shrub uh, component. Mule deer shrubs are, are super important, but so is that forb layer, that herbaceous green mm. uh, weed layer. And so that's one thing they have in common is if you've got drought or you've got some land use practices that not leaving much green vegetation on the ground at all, that's going to that's gonna impact both of those. And so good, healthy quail populations with a lot of good herbaceous cover and green forbs um, is an indicator of a good, healthy system or at least maybe a wet period of time. So in, in that respect, the green, the green herbaceous stuff. Um, otherwise, they have some slightly different habitat requirements. Deer really require a, a good heavy shrub component just for food and for cover. Okay. So these heavy rains, th that is that going to benefit mule deer? Yeah, everything. Yeah. Every, if, you, if you do, like you mentioned, the web of life kind of thing, I mean, everything starts with soil moisture and the vegetation it produces, and then the smaller herbivores and the bigger herbivores and the predators. I mean, it just feeds the whole system uh, kind of everywhere, but it's really accentuated in the Southwest. We have to have that moisture. Okay. So as we go towards close, and I'll ask you um, each for kind of your closing thoughts, um, or, or anything that I should have brought up that I didn't. I'm, I'm going to put Larissa on the spot a little bit and go down the three species of quail and that, that are kind of the, the core for Arizona. And give me, you know, I know you can't really give a forecast. It's a little too early, but sort of we're heading towards going to be same as last year, could be better than last year. Kind of put it into your words where you think we're heading. And let's let's start with uh, start with gambles. So I would say with gambles, uh, we had, you know, we had a couple of wet winters back to back and that put a lot of birds on the ground prior to January of 2020, um, where we kind of started the drought or the, the temporary extreme drought that we've had the last 18 months or so. Um, so we came into that period pretty flush with birds on the ground. Um, like I said, I, you know, I did, we have seen some reproductive events and some success this spring. I have seen young birds here, you know, in urban Phoenix at least. Um, and so that gives me hope that if there are young urban birds, there are young wild birds mm -hmm. out there somewhere. And, uh, you know, they may not be as, as numerous. So for gambles, I would say probably on par with uh, late last season or um, or maybe below average what we would expect to see just because I think, you know, as I understand it, the early 80s saw this huge pulse of gambles quail and that was kind of like a quail hunter's mecca mm -hmm. back in the days here in Arizona. And then we haven't seen that really. We've seen kind of, 
birds plodding along and the occasional up or down pulse of, of things. And, uh, you know, after those two wet winters, we were, I had biologists and quail hunters that were talking about reminiscent of, you know, what it was going into the eighties. Mm. <laughs> so, so that let me know there, there are good numbers out there right. on the ground, you know, at that point. And so if there's carryover, if, if they're able to take advantage of this kind of later moisture in, you know, starting in July, then I expect we'll see good numbers on the ground. The, the problem there, like I said, is if you, if you don't have this giant flush of lots of baby quail running around, then you, and you spread out that hatch, then you tend to get more predation effects gotcha. or those are more pronounced than it would be in a year that there's just this big flush. And so, you know, I've also watched roadrunners snatch baby quail <laughs> on my morning walks and almost wanted to beat the roadrunner, but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. the birds got to eat too. So <laughs> you've brought up roadrunners uh, twice. They're a pretty big predator for, Quail they are a pretty big predator on the baby quail. They do a real number. And, you know, I mean, that, like you're saying back in the, you know, I grew up in, in the South where there are a million shades of green. And the only thing I knew about the desert Southwest was what I saw on Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner cartoon. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've always paid attention to Roadrunners. So you know, how crafty, you know how crafty they are. I know how crafty they are. Yeah. You have to watch out for them. And so, um, you know, I would expect Gamble's quail numbers to be mm, average to below average this year. Okay. Um, unless, you know, there's probably going to be pockets where they were able to really take advantage of that earlier rain down mm-hmm. in the southeast. But probably up here uh, in the more northern Phoenix, central Arizona country, it's probably not as, as booming as I would expect. Scale quail is kind of hard to say because they fall into that, you know, here in Arizona, there's a lot of, like you're saying, that grassland component. And up until the July rains hit, we didn't have grasslands. Mm. We had burned crispy stubs of, and even things like some of our, you know, perennial plants were burned to a crisp. Mm. And so it'll be interesting to see what they are able to do if they can take advantage of that summer pulse then we should have great numbers because like jim was saying those habitats now have you know grass that's growing kind of the knee high like you would think of a nice desert grassland again and same for Mern's quail if they're able to take advantage of that pulse and if we had a good carryover of adults or at least a reasonable carryover of adults the last couple of years then you know we should see a good a good flush of hmm. of Mern's quail on the landscape this fall. So, but uh, that said, I would uh, overall I would think quail numbers are going to be average to maybe a little below average. Okay. You'll have the occasional hot pocket, but probably just more on par with average across the board. Overall, good news though: June and July rains um, good for the long term outlook for for quail in Arizona. Definitely. Great. Um, all right, Jim, closing thoughts, things that I should have brought up that I've missed. <laughs> I, I was going to add to Larissa's that it, to try to forecast what's going to happen this year is really tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we just came off a year and a half of a drought that hasn't been seen. And I, I, I you could look at data and find out, but probably 100 years. And then followed by all-time record mm-hmm. rainfall in Tucson in July. July was the wettest month ever, any month. 
um, ever in the history of Tucson. So what a what a bizarre contrast mm-hmm. to go from one extreme to the other. Right in that period of um, at the end of the gamble when the gamble's quail need moisture, and right at the beginning of the when the burns quail need moisture. So boy, to try to forecast how that's going to play out this fall is is going to be pretty tough. Um, it'll be really, really, truly interesting to see just how people start doing once they get out in the fields like that. Um, but I, I think if there is one overall closing thought, I'd encourage quail hunters to think about three things, habitat, habitat, habitat. We talk about predators, we talk about drought, we talk about rain, um, and a lot of that we really can't do anything about. But when you're out there and you see some habitat that's in bad shape, mm-hmm. find out why it's in bad shape. Find out whose land it is and where it is and who's in charge of it looking in bad shape. So just be eyes and ears on the ground. Be advocates for good quality habitat because that's important for nutrition for quail. To get them ramped up for reproduction, it's important to hide them from things that want to eat them too. And so um, I just encourage everybody to help us trying to maintain and improve with projects, improve habitat um, with with uh, chapter activities and things like that. But think about the habitat that's going to do the best good in the long run. That's a great call, call out and uh, join your local Quail Forever chapter in Arizona. We, we've got uh, a growing um, set of chapters in the state. So lots of ways to, to get involved at quailforever.org. Uh, Larissa, what are your what's your final thought? I would probably just echo Jim that, you know, everything I know about quail says that if the habitat is good, they can kind of manage if there's not freestanding water around. Mm. And so when I talk to our local Quail Forever chapters and they, you know, the nice thing about those groups is that they stay local and they work local. Mm -hmm. And so um, they do a lot of good on our landscapes here and they've asked me time and time again over the last year and a half, like, should we be putting out drinkers? Should we be putting out, you know, pools of water? And, and you you know, the tempting answer is to say yes, <laughs> but the better answer is to say, think about the habitat, get the right plants in place, get the right seed producers in place. And, you know, the quail will take care of the water themselves. So, so, so let's, let's talk a little bit more specifics in that regard, because there, that's a common notion that, you know, and just add water to the, to the, your region. Right. But talk about, you know, the proper habitat management, a couple of tools or practices that could have a major influence on bird numbers in, in your part of the world. Well, I guess I shouldn't have joked so loudly in the last month or two when they asked me that, you know, well, unless you can flood irrigate (laughs) the landscape, then you're not going to have these, you know, you're going to have to look for other alternatives. But we've had flood irrigation now um, in parts of the state with this record rainfall. Um, But, you know, just going back to, I mean, one of the things that our southern Arizona Quail Forever chapter is doing that I really appreciate and that seems to have some good effect that's really quite simple is that we have a lot of, you know, small arroyos, small washes that in these large scale rain events and in our monsoons that come in these very heavy pulses, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just tend to erode and erode and erode and erode as you've got water rushing down them. And, you know, erosion is not good for any of habitat quality or, or, um, and so they've, they've gone in and they've worked with contracting groups and youth groups and their own chapters and volunteers. 
and built these little, they call them one rock dams across some of those smaller arroyos and washes. And just, you know, piling up rocks and uh, that span the span the wash. And you obviously can't do that on a huge wash, but on some of the, a lot of these little ones you can. And what that does is just slow down the water, you know, dumps the sediment back behind the, the dam that, that gets created. And then they go in and, and plant uh, native seed balls into that accumulated soil. And so they're recovering a lot of those areas over time and they've seen great success with it. And then you're able to go in and plant some of our, you know, more native uh, forbs and, and seed bearing plants that are really good for quail. Mm. And and that that's just been great. That's been something that landowners appreciate. And so they're anxious to work with us on that because anything that stops erosion again is good for cows and mm -hmm. and their livestock and uh, preserving habitat quality. And so that's a, that's been a good one. You know, just going in and uh, I have people ask about food plots because mm. that's the other tempting thing is can we add food? Can we add water? And I know they do food plots back east, you know, is very common for deer at least. Mm -hmm but to some extent for Bob White's and other things. And out here, you know, we, we've done some of that on one of the national wildlife refuges that's that's set aside specifically to recover the masked Bob White, mm -hmm. just because we're trying to get numbers up at all in any way that we can there. But, you know, ideally it's just, again, thinking on, on a more landscape level, like, can you get plants, can you get the right conditions on your land and, and in the area to support the plants that will support the quail? And and uh, that's kind of what I push a lot in those groups is let's, you know, here's a list of potential species that are good for quail. How do we get more of those on the landscape? And, and what are the conditions that need to change on your land? You know, whether that's building those one rock dams to avoid erosion and, and getting things can, you know, getting soil back on the landscape that you can then plant. And nothing is obviously a quick fix. I sure. mean, putting out a bowl of water is a quick fix, but it's not a lasting fix. And so. What about uh, any, anything specific to merns? Because that's a little bit different type of habitat. Merns a lot of times is working more, I think, uh, from what I've seen in my experience with merns. Uh, working more with the other land management agencies on like grazing allotments, mm. grazing practices. Um, I know we've had a lot of quail hunters that are concerned about overgrazing. And, you know, some grazing is good for merns, but leaving tall grass for them to hide and take cover in is also good for merns. And so finding that balance and being able to work with ranchers and and land managers to, to strike a good balance. And, you know, maybe it's easier said and done in the years that it's wet because there's lots of grass and you don't feel so bad asking folks to leave some patches ungrazed but in a in a year like we had last summer where you know a blade of grass was a rarity mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot harder and and obviously then the concern climbs astronomically when our hunters go out there and realize that there's not a lot of grass for cover for those birds and so just trying to find that balance with the land man management agencies and the ranchers who are, you know, grazing the cows on those areas. Well, I, I really appreciate both of your time and expertise has been super enlightening and it, it, it really does have me excited. I'm, I'm heading to your state in January. Um, I will be, uh, I will be chasing Merns, which, 
has become one of my absolute favorite species as, as a guy that owns pointing dogs. Um, and it, for any listeners that uh, have never been to Arizona and have never hunted any of these species of quail, but birds in particular are just an absolute blast. And they're, they're one of the most beautiful species of upland birds on the planet too. And, and what's the, they, their diet is pretty unique too. They eat, they're primarily focused on these little tubers, right? They do do a lot of digging. Yeah. They, I mean, that, uh, it's pretty amazing to see their feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They've got big old claws. There's an oxalis bulb, which looks like a little clover, but it's called oxalis. And it's a bulb uh, underneath the ground. And then uh, sedges too have some little nutlets like in their, in their roots. And, and so you can walk along and you can see where the quail have been digging on the hillside and, and of course, then the dog gets all birdie, but he, it, it's kind of fun to have kind of physical evidence like that of, of quail, of like fresh quail sign right there. Yeah. Yeah. They're cool yeah. birds. Well, Jim and Larissa, thank you so much for spending, uh, spending over an hour with us sharing your expertise on, on, uh, gambles, scaled quail and merns. And it's, um, it's nice to hear that you've gotten some rain and things are on the improve from a habitat perspective in the state of Arizona. Thank you. Yep. Happy to be here. Happy to do it. All right, folks. Yep. Thank you very much for uh, listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I'll remind you to uh, uh, check out Quail Forever online at quailforever.org. Uh, we do have a number of chapters of Quail Forever in Arizona, and we're growing in the state of Arizona, which is which is wonderful and it, it, it long overdue. It's, uh, I think, for a lot of folks... Arizona is the best kept secret of the upland bird world with uh, some amazing public lands and three species of terrific quail to hunt. Um, so hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and are planning your own adventure to Arizona sometime in the near future. Um, I'm Bob Sapier, thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>